0: and the future is completely within our control we're
1: living through the single biggest culture shift of our time this is the time for us to just really take charge
0: that's what revolutions do they enable the impossible hey everyone welcome to this episode of the growth show have you gone to sell a couch it's like a miserable experience I've I've ended up putting like multiple couches out on the street just because I didn't have the patience to do it. Well, today we're talking with Raham Fagiri, who's a co-founder of AppDeco, and she set out to solve that very simple problem. Let's dive into our conversation with Raham. I'm Kit Bodner, and this is the Growth Show. I guess to get started, we should probably talk a little bit about you because you and yourself are like a very interesting story. You grew up in the Sudan and then you came to the States for college. Tell me about that experience.
1: I mean, coming to the US for college was obviously difficult just because. Yeah. uh, I think going to college in general is difficult, but also having to <laughs> change. And didn't you go to college when you
0: were like 16 or something ridiculously <laughs> yeah, young as well?
1: Yeah, yeah, I started yeah. super, super early. So I, I was underage my entire four years in college, which was not fun. So, uh, so I mean, it, there was obviously some transitional things that I had to learn, but I was lucky enough to have, I actually came here, my brother was already living in the U.S., and he was doing his master's in the same university I ended up going to. So that made the transition a lot easier,
0: And so, like at 16, you're going to college in the States and you decide you want to do engineering. Like, how does one come to that decision when you're that young and in a different place?
1: All my family are engineers, <laughs> is the short answer. So, um, so that's a good anyway. answer. All my families are,
0: are teachers, but I bucked that trend. Oh, so. really?
1: Yeah, so I mean, it's coming, I think, from like, especially Africa or Asia in general, sort of the expectation is you're you're either an engineer, a doctor, or maybe a lawyer. Um, yeah. That's really the only acceptable professions. But I was also just really, really good at math, like growing up and really enjoyed it. And I was always very curious about electronics and how things... Just worked. So when I came to the U.S., I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I actually was an undeclared for two years, and then I think the second year I sort of—I'm uh, yeah, glad there are no kids listening—but <laughs> but I did—I just, just did a, a random engineering choice, and I landed in electrical engineering. Uh, that's what I ended up choosing. It was not like my life passion to be an electrical <laughs> engineer. Let's put it that way. But uh, but. It, it worked out really well at the end. It was
0: a good starting point, right? You got to start exactly. somewhere. <laughs> exactly. But like, how do you go from randomly picking to be an electrical engineer to like working at Goldman Sachs? It seems like, a, like an interesting transition to me.
1: So after I graduated, or actually no, towards the end of my time at, at Maryland, that's where I went to college,
0: mm-hmm. I
1: was trying to figure out what to do. I think I remember I went to spring break in New York City and I just loved New York. So I was mm-hmm. trying to figure out how to get to New York City. And I learned about the financial industry, and they hired <laughs> engineers. Because in Maryland, you know, obviously, there's a lot of government offices there. So a lot of Intel and you know Lockheed Martin and what have you, they were recruiting at Maryland, but not the financial industry. So yeah. I got obsessed about getting to New York City and didn't really know much about Goldman at the time, but somehow ended up getting an interview there. And yeah, I got the job. <laughs>
0: that's pretty awesome. And so, you know, you, you, you stay there and you, you do some awesome work for a while and then you eventually decide that you want to want to start a startup. Why?
1: So it's a great question. I've always been a problem solver. So even, you know, like go back to high school days or even in college of one of those people who just find a problem trying to fix it. Whether it was like, I think when I was in high school, Being on the like creating an organization committee for graduation because the school decided stopped funding it. I was like, okay, we're gonna have a graduation party. So you know, like this is sort of like I've always been this kind of person. So when I was at Goldman, um, I loved what I was doing, but at certain point, I it just became uh, I wasn't solving my own problem, you know, and like I wasn't really that passionate about finance. So, so I was just trying to find something that was more relatable. I actually even had a nonprofit at Goldman. Like, this is sort of just to give you an example of all the things that I was doing. So, I had my own nonprofit because I figured, hey, like, I need to help nonprofits fundraise because nonprofits don't know how to fundraise. But I can, I'm actually a really good person in terms of um, getting people together. So that's what I that's what I kind of was doing at Goldman. And so I'm like, well, maybe I can make this a living. Didn't know what I wanted to do, um, so left Goldman quit Goldman and went to business school. And so that was my two years of exploring what I I should be doing with my life. And I dabbled with a bunch of ideas when I was there. But uh, what was really exciting was when I was actually graduating and and, and leaving business school to join a a company here in New York City, I was trying to sell my furniture and sort of the idea of, hey, uh, selling furniture sucks. And so <laughs> uh, so I decided to do something about it. And ma- I made it my current life mission, hopefully to solve that problem once and for all.
0: What strikes me is like, you picked a fairly hard problem to solve, which is that somebody has this chair or this good that is, they no longer need, but is valued of somebody. But like, there's a high pain and friction in actually finding that person, transporting the good, the security of that transaction, all, all of those things. How do you even begin to solve that type of problem? Give us kind of the elevator pitch of what you guys are doing, but then tell me, like in the early days, how you went about figuring it out.
1: Sure. Abdeco is a marketplace for buying and selling furniture. We take care of the pickup and delivery and everything in between. So that's sort of the short answer. (laughs) The the way about how we went about it, you know, personal experience is always a great way to sort of start these things. And so when I was moving back from Philadelphia and coming back to New York and selling my furniture, obviously I went to the most popular place, which is Craigslist. And one of the things that I noticed that was a a friction point was the pickup and delivery in particular. So Mm -hmm. uh, I had this woman come and she was buying a beautiful West Elm bed that I had. But, you know, she needed me to help her disassemble it and then like carry it down the elevator. And, you know, so there was all these sort of touch points that I just thought were just so inefficient. And because I was in business school at the time and there were 800 of my closest friends also graduating with me, the topic of graduation was, hey, were you able to sell your furniture to? So a lot of people were going through the same thing at the same time as me. And I just noticed that as a wow, like I hated it. All my friends hate it. There's no better way to do this. What if I just start offering delivery as a service just to see this is if this is something that is viable. So I went mm-hmm. on Craigslist. I would just post the same listing with and without delivery. Say like same day delivery in, you know, in Philadelphia or in New York City, and I would see so many people were interested just based on my hypothesis once I included a delivery option. Mm-hmm. So that was sort of like my first pre-MVP of validating if this is even an idea worth going into or not. And from there, you know, I actually just started offering <laughs> delivered a service without even having a website, had like a small partnership with a moving company here in New York city and kind of went from there into building the site and sort of growing the company from there. But at first it was just trying to validate if there's an idea that I should be working on or not.
0: Yeah. You know, I think what's interesting is like, you know, it's a marketplace business. You've got a, you've got a, the two sides of it and, Getting the supply and demand on both sides is always the the hard part. Yes. Like, how did you how did you get that started? Like, that's, that's there's like thirty people who have marketplace companies that want to know your answer to that right now. I'm sure
1: <sighs> uh, Craigslist is a great place to start that. So when we first started, I actually would email just people. You know, people are already selling their furniture on Craigslist, so I would email them on Craigslist and like, hey, you know, I have this new company. Would you give us a try? And a lot of people ignored, of course, because they thought I was um, spamming them or scamming them. And some people were sort of just so fed up that actually gave us a chance. And so people will. a few people started listing. I would actually list for them. I would call. i like, hey, I would list for you. And this is during the days where Craig still allowed people's email addresses. So you were not using their email relay service. Yeah. Um, so I actually had their email. So I was like, hey, like, I promise I'm a real person. Look at my credentials. I'd be happy to list all your stuff for you. You don't have to do anything. You know, just like very high-touch experience. Yep. And, and it worked. You know, it worked, but it was really, really tough. And so that's how we got our first, you know, 10, 20 listings. And I was obviously begging a lot of my friends to try to get rid of their furniture <laughs> at the time, too. <laughs> and then we would go back on Craigslist and, reset and and post on Craigslist again saying, hey, like, look at this beautiful couch with delivery. So I would just include with delivery in my listings. Mm. And that's how we found buyers. So I, you know, honestly, it was like it's mostly Craigslist just initially to just get our first, you know, few sales. And we took yeah. it from there.
0: Beyond like just the pure hustle of it, it was like you artificially created demand essentially because you had these active prospects and you were like, oh, I'll fulfill this for you. You went to one side of the marketplace and, and worked it. That was awesome. And the next thing there is like, how do you scale that? How do you get that thing, you know, off of Craigslist onto a, a destination site where you're going to have both the buyers and the sellers interacting, which I'm looking from the outside, seems like you guys have done successfully. So how did you pull that transition off?
1: So once we had the platform, it became more about how do you get more supply and how do you create this experience where people mm-hmm. want to start talking about you. So that was sort of our next challenge to try to figure yeah. out. And, you know, I can't, tell you, I can't sit here and tell you we're experts in marketplaces because we're, know, we're still figuring it out, right? So, and I think we're always going to be still figuring it out because the, the, sort of the pendulum swings from one side of the market to another at different points in the evolution of our business. But we just focused on the experience part of our business. If I can make sure that everybody who comes through the door is super delighted, they're going, you know, hopefully to tell their family and friends. Because the alternative is so crappy right now that the experience just made such a big difference. So when we first offered delivery, like, oh, we'll just use moving companies and have them take care of delivery, uh, we realized, like, the, the quality of service, so you really want to control that. You want to control the brand narrative. You want to control the experience from soups to nuts. So we brought delivery in-house. So we now have our own vans. that Our guys wear our orange t-shirts, orange vans. They are trained to speak a certain way, et cetera. And that took an okay moving experience or delivery experience to... Sort of an over over the moon moving experience. It created that sticking point where people are like, wow, this is incredible, and they naturally tell all their friends and family about it. So that's one example. Same thing with customer service. You know, creating that high touch point where they everybody knows our customer service folks here. They talk to them like they talk to their friends. So you know, those those different elements make a big difference. And also it's just the product side, making sure that the product is addressing the need. So you want to. Make, you want to build a product, which for us is obviously the marketplace, the e-commerce site itself, that's simple to use, that's intuitive. All of those things are sort of the, the three elements that we really focused on, which helped us helped us grow our organic... I mean, it's over 50, 50% of our business currently comes from word of mouth slash organic.
0: Where's the other 50% coming from?
1: A few different places. So we do advertising here in New York City. Uh, mm-hmm. We do out-of-home advertising, like subway, bus advertising, et cetera. <laughs> We have also digital advertising like Google, Facebook advertising, etc. So that's that's sort of where the paid part comes from, um, mm-hmm. and then you know organic search as well is a big portion of that.
0: Oh, I'm sure. In the last few years, have you have been building up the company? Has there been, from a marketing perspective, because we got a lot of mar- marketers in there, have there been any any home runs? There been any stunts or any campaigns or anything that has worked exceptionally well relative to you know the the time and cost to actually make that investment
1: well i mean your question is quite timely i have to say uh, we actually just closed our third year uh, so we're looking at our mark evolution of marketing paid and unpaid and to see sort of how that's that was going through time a home run initially was what was out of home advertising and this is before <laughs> predates all the small startups in York. i don't know how it is in boston but in New York, currently a lot of companies do subway advertising a lot of tech startups do subway advertising. Mm-hmm. When we started, we were definitely one of the earlier ones uh, uh, yeah. for, uh, for a small company so that was a home run at that time, but now we're seeing it's not as effective for us, but I think it would probably might still be effective for other companies. things that did not work for us at all but that seem to be working now surprisingly mm-hmm. is Facebook advertising. Three years ago when we tried to do Facebook advertising, it was just the customer acquisition costs were very high. We would get a lot of visitors, but they were not actually converting into repeat customers. Mm -hmm. Well, now we started experimenting again with Facebook ads and the opposite is happening. So the lesson learned there is, you know, there's not going to be one channel that's going to work forever. Well, I'm hoping that maybe there will, but...
0: but (laughs) let (laughs) me know if you find that, because I I haven't found that to be true yet. Okay,
1: I'm glad. I'm glad at least our theory is correct. But, you know, you always have to have some port of experimentation, and you have to just keep looking at your metrics and sort of tweaking that from, from time to time. And that's what we're doing right now.
0: And there's also, like, you guys are scaling your company, and so you need a certain amount of growth. And, you know, you might have a really great channel, like At Home or Facebook, or whatever, but it might be limited to a certain scale and that might not and you might your growth expectations might exceed that and so i think it's it's really about having that diverse set of channels that's really hard absolutely so you, you've been at this this now for three years you guys are doing well congrats look back over the last three years what's the biggest mistake what, what can you share with everybody listening in to us today to, to maybe help them avoid as they're going through a similar path
1: Wow. Uh, where do I start? <laughs> the important thing about mistakes is learning from them. So, uh, that's the truth. So I think early on, you know, like we went through the whole fundraising thing and then like, okay, well, we have this money and we're, we're just going to focus on sort of our top growth, top-line mm-hmm. growth and not focusing on our bottom line, like how much money you're burning or we're burning. and And that definitely... Was a, not a good, not a good strategy because you, you, you know, as a business, you want to, you want to build a healthy business, and you want to build a business that's actually going to stay forever. Hopefully, Same. at least at that, that's our goal. So, focusing on top line growth without looking at your unit, you know, unit economics is definitely not the right way to go. It's very important to look at unit economics from day one. Continue to tweak that around to make sure that you have profitable unit economics. Even if your LTV or things of that nature or, you know, customer costs, obviously they're going to change, but really looking at what's your LTV, what's your repeat purchase rate, what's your repeat selling rate for a marketplace, what's your turnover, and making sure that these numbers make sense and as your company scales, they continue to make sense is very, very important because we did not do that initially and we almost ran out of money at some point, but thankfully... You know, we learn from our mistake and we are focused on making sure that we always have positive economics.
0: So how did you, you get better at that?
1: We, I'm an engineer. My co-founder, he's, you know, he used to work in, in corporate in marketing, but he comes from a data-driven organization. So both of us have this very you know, very analytical skill set in our team. Most of them are. But when you're a small company, you have to just prioritize. And the issue is about prioritization. So the analytics were not as important because we're like, hey, well, as long as our top line numbers are growing, it's fine. We don't have to worry about that. Uh, when obviously we, we went through the scare of potentially having running out of money, we just had to recalibrate of what are the top priorities. Well, our top priorities for the company is we need to always have a path to profitability. We need to make sure that we're always looking at making decisions based on data, full set of data, not just one set of data. And so we just... But it did better tracking and started just crunching numbers. If we're going to make a decision, what does the data say? And just having that thought process and making sure that the team, this is their top priority now is to analyze before making decisions um, has helped us a lot. I, I'll add one more thing to that. Yeah, You also like there's, you, you want to avoid analysis paralysis, right? So like you don't want to be.
0: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's what I was going to say. There's a whole flip side to that. Exactly.
1: Though. You also don't want to like overanalyze. So you have to. It's definitely an art and a science um, versus just a science. So, so we, we were sort of on one end of the spectrum, and I would say like, we're now finding like, a good middle point of the spectrum where we're analyzing, but we're still quickly making decisions. And some things are very obvious, where you don't need to analyze first. So you, kind of, you, you have to use a combination of both.
0: That is very, very good advice. Uh, as somebody who has been down this road, that is <laughs> spot on. The, the other thing, you know, as somebody who has, has been fortunate to be an observer of a lot of different companies, is that companies rarely end up being what they set out to be. You know, there's that evolution of what happened. How are, how are you guys different today than the vision when you very first started the company?
1: I never thought I would be doing logistics in house. So these the vans, the delivery drivers, which are incredible—that's gonna
0: be painfully painful <laughs> stuff to manage.
1: Operations, um, yeah, yeah, operations is it's, it's it's incredible, incredibly challenging, but it's also very interesting. And you know, you you can look at it in two different ways. One way is like, well, you know, we—I'm always very envious of companies who have an app and you know they don't touch physical products because it's just mm-hmm. seem it's at least from the outside in seems a lot easier to scale versus a company where you're physically moving products and you have obviously drivers and and trucks and what have you but it's that was like that's the biggest change I would say from where we started the business but our whole theory about listen we want to help people buy and sell furniture has always been there um, we've, we're now seeing that there's different kinds of companies that are using us is, is in addition to individuals. So you and I may be, let's say, moving and trying to sell off couch or a bed. Uh, that was what we sold for initially. But we're now seeing that retailers are using us, small stores, interior designers, what have you. So there's all these segments of populations that we did not think that would be interested in using a platform like ours. Uh, but they are actually using us and becoming a big percentage of our business as well. So that that was like that's the second evolution of our business. However, our model itself has always stayed the same.
0: Yeah. So I think that's what's what's fascinating is so many companies that I've seen that have been successful, the vision is remarkably consistent. It's the execution and and the things underlying it that have, have had to evolve or change, and that seems to be your your case. You're like, hey, man, I'm solving the problem I set out to solve three years ago. I'm just not solving it in the exact way that I thought I was going to. Uh, which is which is really interesting.
1: Definitely. And you know it's uh it's it all comes down to really like looking at your customers and digging deeper in who they are. When we first started uh, I used to visit, I mean I did deliveries myself, my co-founder did a lot of deliveries himself. Sure. Um, we used to visit customers and sit down with our sellers especially to understand who they are. We learned a whole lot by just sitting and talking to customers, and which helped us really evolve or evolve our business, but, like, we learned that, hey, they loved our delivery, but the day we brought delivery in-house, they were, you know, very excited about delivery. So, so really tweaking things, and there's a few things you can tweak here and there that will make a difference, is very important. So paying attention to that, I think, is key, especially earlier.
0: Yeah, you, you talked about that you never planned to, like, bring delivery in-house and have logistics and, and do all that stuff strikes me as hard. Uh, what have, <laughs> would have been some of the unexpected surprises or challenges of t- actually doing that?
1: Oh, wow. Um, I can write a whole thesis on <laughs> <laughs> operations of, of having trucks. I mean, simple things like people showing up to work and, you know, like it's a completely different type of labor. So, so thinking about that is a challenge. Thinking about, hey, will your trucks actually work in the morning? What happens if there's a snowstorm? What if your truck is down, it's broken in the road? What if you get in an accident? All these things that you just don't think about when you're like making a business decision. Like, hey, we're going to bring delivery in house. Then the details <laughs> become very important. And we've had to learn about how do you get that going. Actually, you know, some, something even simpler than that. How do you build routes? Like now you have deliveries, you have hundreds or thousands of stops in a given day or, you know, let's say in a given week. How do you organize? Where do you go next? So we had to build a lot of technology to support that Where before we didn't even have to think about it. We didn't even know it's a need. So the business evolution, the technology, we actually required a lot of changes to support bringing it in-house that we didn't even think about initially.
0: And, and doesn't just and then you also just have like the stuff that goes wrong. I think I saw a presentation where like you had a truck explode or something. Like, yeah. <laughs> how, like, how do you deal with that? It's <laughs> just, just like, yeah. man, sometimes stuff goes sideways.
1: You have to just be very, very comfortable with the idea things are just not going to go as planned. So with the truck exploding, we so we have a rule with our delivery drivers, which is pretty much don't call the office unless you know, it, the world is going to end tomorrow. Unless
0: the truck is on fire.
1: Exactly. Pretty much, yeah. Um, and that was sort of like, of course, it's not going to happen. So when we, one of the drivers called and like, hey, the truck is on fire. We're like, yeah, right. You know, what do you mean? Like, I swear to God, the truck is on fire. Uh he sent us a photo. We're like, okay, well, the truck is on fire. Uh, thank God that was towards the end of their day. So we didn't really have that much furniture that we lost. But, you know, First things first, we need to make sure that they were okay. Safety first, obviously, and then right. we went from there, talking to the manufacturer because it turned out it turned out to be actually a manufacturer error. Uh, but you know, insurance becomes very important, making sure you're insured. I think when you're <laughs> right. early on, you don't really think about insurance as much. But I'm very happy that we have insurance because that became instrumental when we were dealing with this. You just have to be adaptable. You know, like yeah. short answers, just being adaptable and know that. Things are not necessarily going to go as planned, but you know, what are you going to learn uh, from those mistakes, and what are you? Ha, ha, what's your team's response? Like, are people creative enough? People should obviously feel comfortable making decisions and and just getting things done that make sense for the business at that time.
0: Okay, so so here at HubSpot, we have we have a we have a saying that we talk we say to each other a lot, which is like the thing that keeps us up at night, and it's like that's the the current worry or the current problem to be solved. Like, what's the thing that's keeping you up at night right now?
1: Oh, my gosh. <laughs> um, a few things. So, you know, I feel like we've figured out operations, but we have not figured out completely. So that really definitely keeps me up at night. The second thing that we I mentioned earlier, we're talking a lot about our acquisition channels and, and sort of what does that look like today versus what it looked like a couple of years ago. That has become a hot topic in our company How do you, you know, what is that, what are our new acquisition channels look like? How do you, Mm -hmm. how do you balance experimentation with scaling your channels that are working? What are the diminishing, where are diminishing returns? So these are things that we've constantly been talking about here in the business. And, you know, I, me as a product person and an engineer, I'm always obsessed about, you know, is the product serving its purpose? Mm -hmm. What are the things that I should be changing? So uh, a lot of times you'll see me just browsing the site. I wish I could buy everything in the site, but obviously I can't. But I'm, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I'm always obsessed about what people think. So it, I, sadly enough, I have a lot of dreams about that. But, uh.
0: How often do you break down and buy something from your own site?
1: Ooh, uh, actually, I was just shopping there today. So <laughs> <laughs> For the office, the good thing about having a furniture company, I can change the furniture in the office a lot which we've been doing
0: <laughs> so, that's awesome yeah and very appropriate um it's called market <laughs>
1: testing right so yeah. exactly
0: totally and your response around scaling channels and experimenting with channels i feel like that is like every marketing person's problem ever feels like you're in a meeting i was having this morning it's a it's kind of a constant problem unfortunately um
1: i wish i mean you have a lot more experience i was hoping you're <laughs> gonna say You'll figure it uh, out. That it was going to be better. No, no, <laughs> no,
0: no. no. The, the thing is, you figure it out, and then it's then you got to figure it out again, right? Changes. You know? Yeah. You, yeah. You'll go through. You'll figure it out for the next six to twelve months, and then you'll you'll do it again. Uh, before I let you go, you know, you you have to be in the weeds on a bunch of stuff. Like, how do you how do you step back? How do you think about the future? How do you think about like the broader strategy of the company? Like, how do you find time to do that?
1: That is actually a really great question. Taking a time to really just think about the broader strategy is so important. So my co-founder and I, we do like monthly check-ins where we just sit for you know three to four hours and just sort of think about plan versus actual, what's our quarterly plan, what's our six month plan. And we found that to be super, super helpful. And obviously this is the beginning of the year, so what we did was we did that for the entire year. And just... Kinda gave us um, a better perspective of where, where we are as a company and where we should be headed. It's so important. And you know, I, I remember when our first year or two, because I was also doing customer service and, you know, mm-hmm. doing some deliveries myself, and you know, you're just in the weeds all the time. We we actually missed out on opportunities to just take a step back. And I cannot emphasize it more that it's just so important, so important to take that step back, even when you're in the weeds. Just really see how things are going, and you know where do you where do you see this headed? What are your custom, What are your customers say, saying? That's how you make changes, and that's how you grow the business is by you know by making sure that you're you're headed in the right direction that you thought you should be going in.
0: Absolutely, I think that's a great note to end on. Other than you should come to Boston next. We 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 we, we have lots of furniture here so consider us in your expansion plans we are
1: definitely um, <laughs> actively working on that let's put it that we, way we got, we, hey, we got a lot
0: of students and a lot of students Exactly. Mean a, lot, a lot of furniture turning over so nice to talk with you see you later
1: bye. bye
0: hi thanks so much for listening to today's episode if you love the growth show and you like what you heard today please leave us a review in iTunes it helps us share the growth show with the world